fan. Uh, and as an Eagles fan, uh, one of the great players that we, I got to witness growing up was a fellow by the name of Reggie White. I got a picture of Reggie up here. If you all remember Reggie White, number 92, played for the Eagles, I think eight years and then six years with the Packers after that, then retired, then came back a year and played with uh, maybe the Carolina Panthers. I'm not really sure. But in any case, he was uh, considered one of the greatest uh, defensive linemen of all time. Um, he had, I've got some statistics here, he had the second most sacks in NFL history at 175. He actually had more than 200 sacks uh, if you include the time that he played in the whatever that other league was, the CFL or something like that. Anyhow, he had two time, he was named the two time defensive player of the year twice, and then he had 13 times he was named as a pro. Pro Bowl player. He was also an ordained minister in the Baptist Church. I don't know if any of y'all knew that. And his nickname was the Minister of Defense. That's right. He was called the Minister of Defense. And he was known for having a strong stance on social issues that the Bible teaches on. And he stood firm on what the Bible teaches. Um, and he was a generally an outspoken guy for the gospel. For this reason, again, he got the nickname the Minister of Defense. Um, and so to this day, he's considered one of the greatest defensive linemen of all time. Um, as a born-again believer, White would not allow other players to cuss at him, either coaches or players. Uh, just wouldn't allow it. I mean, if you want to cuss at somebody else, that's fine. You do that, but you're not going to talk to me that way. And uh, he's a big guy, so people, you know, went along with that. Um, well, Mike Golick, one of his former teammates and a defensive lineman himself, tells a story of how a young offensive lineman in one of the early preseason games was saying some things to Reggie White that he did not, Reggie White did not appreciate. And the young offensive lineman knew this. And so he just kept saying this over and over to Reggie White. Well, as the game progressed on, Reggie White was just getting more and more incensed. And a couple of times his team, own teammates had to restrain him because he told the guy, you stop talking to me that way. And the guy wouldn't stop. And he was just egging White on. Well, um, one of the plays came up, and Mike Golick could tell uh, this is going to go very poorly for this poor young offensive lineman. Um, and so Reggie White stepped up to the line, and as he walked up to the line, he said, Jesus is coming. And uh, Mike Golick told the guy, again, it's preseason, he told the guy across me, he said, look, I'm not going to rush. I just want to see what happens here on this play. And so sure enough, Reggie White gets down in his stance, and he says, Jesus is coming. And he kept repeating it, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And finally, when the uh, center hiked the ball, Reggie Whiteman lit into the lineman so hard. This guy's 300 pounds. Lit into the guy so hard that he knocked the offensive lineman back into the quarterback for a sack of the quarterback. <laughs> Unreal. Um, and when, he, uh, when, when the play was over, he walked up to the offensive lineman. As he's laying there on the ground on top of his quarterback, he stood over top of him and he said, I told you, Jesus is coming. Well, that's our topic for today. All humor aside, we want to talk about Jesus' coming, his second return, the return of Christ. Um, our text for today comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I know I told you last week I'm going to be preaching from 2 Peter. We will. We're going to get into 2 Peter over the course of the next coming weeks. However, um, Peter talks a lot about, in his second letter, the return of Christ. And so what I want to do, by way of introduction, is to take you to a passage of Scripture where the return of Christ is most prominently spoken about, and then we can go into 2 Peter with a solid foundation of what the return of Christ is. I'm going to ask and answer three questions today. 
Those questions are, what is the return of Christ? Secondly, when will it happen? And finally, what will it be like? Like I've heard that there's going to be earthquakes. We were just thinking about how the mountains will be made low and the valleys will be raised up. What, is the, what can I expect when Christ returns a second time? And so this passage of Scripture that Paul writes here, 1 Thessalonians 4, will give us the answers to those questions. And we'll do a little bit of work and we'll mention Peter today as well. Um, again, our text comes from 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to be reading verses 13 and then 16 through 18. I think that's what they've got at the back. So let's stand to our feet for the reading of God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, and then 16 through 18. Here we go, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to walk through those verses here in just a bit, but I want to answer the first question, which is, uh, what is the return of Christ? What are we talking about? Um, and so uh, let's take a look at that. In about uh, 50 days after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, um, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, records the ascension of Christ. So he's resurrected from the dead. He's walking around in a physical body. And now, 50 days later, um, he uh, ascends back up into heaven. So Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, let's take a look at that. It says, And when Jesus had said these things as they were looking on, his disciples were looking on, he was lifted up, or he floated up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So two angels show up alongside the disciples as they're looking up and watching the Lord Jesus ascend up into heaven. These two angels show up, and they say to the disciples, verse 11, uh, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go. So when we're talking about the return of Christ. We're talking about uh, Jesus returning back to the earth the way that he left it. So he ascended up into heaven. Um, he, the clouds took him up into the heavens. And then he will return the same way. Um, question number two is when is this going to happen? Well, let me give you the general answer, and then I'll give you a specific answer. Uh, the general answer is this. Let's take a look. At, I've got a timeline for you here. Um, in this timeline, I've used this before. It might be familiar to some of you. I'll, I'm going to walk through it. Um, it's timeline gives us um, a timeline of human history. And as you can see there, the Bible gives us two ages to human history. The first age is what we might think of as the Old Testament age or the age of the law. This began at creation and then with the fall. Uh, one of the early church uh, fathers and martyrs named Polycarp was actually someone who posited the thought that time did not begin as a concept until the fall. So until sin entered into the world, then all of a sudden the clock began to tick. But that's neither here nor there. Anyhow, uh, time as human history begins with creation and then the fall, and then it continues on through what we would think of as the Old Testament age. There's a second age of human history, and that age is the age of the Spirit or the church age. That's the age that we live in now. 
the age of the Spirit will conclude with the end of time. So human history, this is how the Bible sees human history on a linear scale. It's not cyclical like a lot of the other religions of the world. It is a linear scale that it had a beginning and it will have an end. And so we have the age of the law followed by the age of the Spirit. You notice there's a little bit of an overlap there between the two ages. The question is, well, when does the first age uh, end and when does the, first, the second one begin? Well, we know that the second one begins with Jesus coming into the world but the first age ends either with his ascension or with the destruction of Jerusalem at 70 AD. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a moment. But anyhow, you got the general concept there that there are two uh, ages of, of human history. Uh, so the answer to the question generally, when will Jesus return? He will return at the end of time. Right? So human history's come to an end, the, the chart's finished, and that is when Jesus will return. Um, human history will come to a close. Time will be no more. Time as a unit, as a standard of information or of measurement, will end. So that's generally when the return of Christ will happen um, at the end of time. Well, what about specifically? What year? What day? What can we even can we expect this to happen? Well, look at First Thessalonians chapter five and verse th verses one through three. First Thessalonians chapter five verse one. Uh, Paul writes, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? Verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He's indicating there that we're not going to know when Jesus is going to return. We're not going to know when the end of time is supposed to take place. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. In other words, when it comes to the specific question of when is this going to happen, well, nobody knows. I mean, the Lord Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night would come. I mean, a thief does not announce, hey, I'll be there in 10 minutes. No, a thief is, just shows up, right? And so that's the same idea of the return of Christ, that when Jesus does return, we won't, uh, we won't be, know that he was coming. Peter points this out as well. Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. In other words, this is going to happen instantaneously. There will be no warning. It's just going to be the end of time, and poof, that's it. Um, so generally speaking, Jesus will return at the end of the second age, and this will mark the end of time, the end of human history. But specifically, Jesus will return like a thief in the night. No one knows when this will be. You can't put a date on the calendar. It's just going to happen. Um, okay, last question, question number three. When the, when the return of Christ does happen, what is it going to be like? What, what can I expect? What, what are the events that are going to take place when Jesus returns to the earth? Um, well, there's a fair amount of agreement when it comes to this uh, subject matter, but then there's also some disagreement. Let me start with where the agreement is. Um, looking at our passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, Paul, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, because we do not want you to grieve as others who have no hope. Notice the word in that verse, asleep. You see that word there, asleep? You say, well, is Paul saying that people who die are just like in some sort of stasis, like they're, they're in a sleep state? No, that's not what Paul is referring to there. The, the term that's used there uh, is a euphemism that they would have used in the first century to refer to people who have died. It's very similar to us when we talk about someone who has died. We say that they have passed away or that we have lost uh, somebody. Uh, we haven't really lost them. It's just that they've, they've gone on. And so uh, that's just a nice way of saying that someone has died to say that they have fallen asleep. Um, say, 
And so Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have died. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. So when Jesus returns, the Bible says, he will bring with him the souls of those who are in heaven. You see, when you die here on this earth, your body, your soul parts from your body. We lay in the ground, the physical person, but then their soul goes on up to heaven and is with Jesus in eternity right now. I mean, those that have gone on before us in Christ are in eternity right now. They're not waiting for Jesus to return uh, to, to, to come back to life. They're already alive in their soul in heaven at this moment. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord Jesus himself, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So now Paul begins to address the issue of, well, what about people who are here alive on the earth when Jesus returns? He's addressed the issue of the, the people who are in the grave, but what about people who are alive when Jesus comes to the earth? He says, for those people, that for the believers who are alive at the time when Jesus returns, verse 15, we will not precede those who are dead or who have fallen asleep. So when Jesus returns to the earth, graves will be popping up. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, just like he ascended up to heaven, he's going to descend from heaven, with a cry of command, with that loud roar that we were singing about, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God. Here Paul teaches that two things are going to happen at Christ's return. First, we'll hear the loud command of the Lord Jesus, like that of an archangel. It'll be heard all across the globe. Um, and then the second thing is, all across the globe, we'll hear a trumpet blast from heaven. A trumpet blast. And when this happens, verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, the dead will be reconstituted. Their bodies will, um, and they'll fly. Their their bodies, reconstituted bodies, will fly up out of the oceans. They'll fly up out of the ground. They'll fly up out of the cemeteries all over the world. Bodies will be flying up into the sky. You say, is this the zombie apocalypse? No, friends. This is the resurrection of the dead. That's what the Bible's talking about. And then after that happened, verse 17, then we who are alive, that is the believers who are alive at the time that Jesus returns, who are standing there watching all of these graves pop open and watching these bodies floating up into the sky to meet their souls that Jesus is bringing back with him to the earth, uh, then we who are alive who are left will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Verse, verse 18, therefore knowing this, encourage one another with these words. You say, Gordon, I mean, I've heard that there were going to be earthquakes. I heard that there were going to be locusts with the head of demons flying around. There's going to be all these sorts of things going on. Um, I've heard that the stars are going to fall out of the sky, that the moon's going to drip blood. When is all of this stuff supposed to happen? Well, that's where the disagreement begins. Flip over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1. And in, these, in, these, in this chapter, you have a lot of uh, Jesus talking about um, some cataclysmic stuff taking place. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 24. It ties into our text for today and into 2 Peter. Matthew 24 and verse 1. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away from it when his disciples came up to him and began pointing out to him the buildings of the temple. Um, that is, they were pointing out all the structures that were around the temple itself. Now, this is a very simple question. I'm not trying to give you a tricky question here, okay? What temple do you suppose the disciples are talking about? The one that's in Asia 
in North America, the one that was right there in front of them, maybe? You say, well, yeah, I mean, it was, they, were, they were just walked out of the temple. I mean, if you read the text, they just walked out of the temple. They're standing there outside the temple, and they're looking up at the walls. They're looking up. I've got a picture of it for you here. They're looking up at the walls. They're looking up at the temple structure itself and all the surrounding structures, and they're talking about that temple that was there in the first century in Jesus' own day. Um, Jesus then says, verse 2, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Jesus then says in verse 2, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Again, which temple is he talking about? Well, it seems very obvious to us that he's talking about the temple that was there at the time when he was alive on the earth that he had just walked out of. He's not talking about some temple off into the future. He's talking about the one that was right there in front of he and the disciples. And then Jesus tells us, when the destruction of this temple is going to take place. He just said not one stone is going to be left upon another. He tells us when it's going to happen. Look at verse 34. Um, He says, truly I say to you, this generation. Again, is he talking about that temple that was here in that day? I mean, it seems like that's what he's talking about. And then he says, this generation. Now, he he turns from his attention to talk about the temple to talk about this generation. The generation that he's living in at that time. He says, this generation will not pass away until all the things take place, until all these things take place, talking about the destruction of that temple. A generation in the Bible is always 40 years. Jesus is saying this generation will not die until these things have happened. Again, what is he talking about? He's talking about the destruction of the temple. He's talking about not one stone left upon another, and he gives the time frame for this to take place. It will happen in this generation. It will happen within the next 40 years. Jesus, um, and so, in fact, he offers the same time reference prediction in the previous chapter. Matthew 23 and verse 36. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus is offering up in Matthew 23 and 24 a list of woes. Um, He's very concerned for Israel. He's very concerned for his Jewish brethren that they would respond to the gospel, that they would respond and accept him as their Messiah. They're hesitant to do this. In fact, they're going to um, end up putting him on a cross in a couple of days. Um, and so he's expressing his concern. Um, and he says, because in, within a generation, within 40 years, there's going to be this massive destruction that's going to come upon this generation, upon these people. And that temple right there that represents the strength of this nation uh, is going to be completely um, dismantled. Not one stone left on another. And sure enough, that's what happened. Within 40 years of the Lord Jesus saying that, here comes the armies of, the, of, of Rome, led by the general Titus. Um, they march against Jerusalem. They put uh, Jerusalem in circle, this city. I've got a painting of, it for, of, you, uh, painting of that destruction of Jerusalem for you here. Um, and they did all those things within 40 years of Jesus saying that it would happen. It is clear what, G, what event Jesus is talking about. It is clear what temple Jesus is referring to. Now, here's where the problem lies. Go back to Matthew 24 and verse 1. Take a look at that, or verse 3. Take a look at that with me. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? He just told them not one stone is going to be left on another. And their question is, when? Can you tell us when, when we can expect this? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Um, take a look again at the timeline that I had for you. Um, There are two ages in human history, correct? The first age is the Old Testament age, the age of the law. The second age is the age of the spirit, or the church age is the age we live in now. 
For years, when I picked up my Bible and I read those words, the end of the age, I always conflated the end of the first age with the end of time. Whenever I read the end of the age, I always thought the Bible was talking about the end of time. But that's not necessarily what was in Jesus' mind. What I've learned since is that sometimes when the Bible says the end of the age, it is referring to the end of the age of the law. On this occasion, Jesus is talking about judgment that will come upon his own people, the Jewish people who are living at the time of Christ. And that this destruction that's coming uh, is going to happen to this generation because they have rejected Jesus. Um, And so God is going to bring judgment on them. He's going to end their sacrificial system by taking away their temple. They can't go in there and make sacrifices for sin anymore. They can't go in there and make sacrifices for praise anymore. We're going to do that now through Jesus. That's how this is going to happen moving forward. And interestingly enough, since that temple was destroyed in 70 AD, it has yet to be built back again. I mean, it's the heart of the Jewish nation. You would think, you'd think that they would want to rebuild that, that they would have rebuilt that. But the hand of God is against the Jewish nation to ever rebuild that temple Because they're not going to start having sacrifices in there again. Jesus is now the way. Uh, And so this is the focus of Matthew 24. Now what does that have to do with 2 Peter, um, with his letter to the church? Well, in the coming weeks, we will see that there is remarkable similarity between what Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 3, talking about the day of the Lord, and what Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is all about the destruction of that temple that Jesus was looking at, talking about with his disciples. The question for us will be, is Peter describing the end of the age of the law, or is Peter describing the return of Christ? And I'm going to leave it there, because if I start going any further, we'll be here, I need at least another hour. So we're going to punt that, some of that into next week, but that just kind of gives you an idea of where we're going and what we're going to be investigating over the course of the coming weeks. Um, so for today, I just want to introduce you to the concepts of this age of the law uh, and that the age of the spirit or the church age, that there's two ages of human history. Sometimes when the Bible talks about the end of the age, it's referring to the end of the first age, uh, which culminated perhaps in 70 AD, perhaps in, with the ascension of Christ. And then there's the second age, which, end, which com- comes to completion at the end of time. All right, that's where we're going to leave it, uh, which means it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? Um, it's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Now, I know that I talked too long last week. Some of you probably were aware of that. I, I found out about it <laughs> from my wife afterwards that I had talked a little bit too long. But anyhow, so I'm going I'm to go short on you today. I'll do you a favor here. Um, flip back over to 1 Thessalonians chapter, so I only have one point to follow up, is what I'm trying to say. Flip back over to 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. Um, that's the verse that we read earlier, verse 13. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Why? Because we do not want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul is reminding the early church that in Christ they have hope of life beyond the grave. What a wonderful reminder that we have hope of life beyond the grave. 
You know, uh, funerals can be sad occasions, just generally speaking. Uh, if, if we lost someone that we care deeply about, they're no longer with us. It leaves a hole in our heart. Um, it leaves a void in our lives. And for this reason, funerals can be sad occasions. Just this past year, our church has lost several longtime church members. And then you enter into seasons like Thanksgiving and Christmas that are right here upon us, and it just accentuates that feeling of loss. But as each of us knows, we as Christians, we as believers in Christ, have a leg up on the recovery process that the world does not experience. You see, we know that out there in that cemetery, that, that those graves are going to come open one day. That the Lord Jesus is going to return in the sky, that there'll be a loud roar from heaven, like that of an archangel, and it'll be heard across the whole globe. There'll be a trumpet blast that will precede the coming of the Lord. The skies will part, and he will appear in the sky with the souls of all those who, have, who are dead in Christ. As believers in Christ, we know that death does not have the final say, that the grave will not hold us. It could not hold our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and because of that, it cannot hold us as well. Paul goes on to point this out. Look at verse 14. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so just as Jesus rose from the dead, we can be confident that we too will rise from the dead. You say, well, Gordon, how do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? Do you have any evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, actually, I do. I'll flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul gives us a list of people that saw the resurrected Christ, that saw Jesus come back to life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 5. He says, um, Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12 disciples, verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom have fallen asleep, who have died. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, the Lord's brother, then to all the apostles, verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me. So we know that the resurrection occurred because there were eyewitnesses who testify to the fact that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Um, and so in a court of law, one of the ways that a case can be made, one of the ways that a case is proved, is by submitting evidence. And one of the evidences that you get when, you, when lawyers are submitting evidence is an eyewitness account, and that's considered submissible or admissible evidence. Um, you know, somebody says, I saw so-and-so at such-and-such a place, and the court says, you know what, that's, that's as good as a fingerprint at the scene of the crime. Um, and so they can build their case on that. And so that's what we have here. We have eyewitnesses to the resurrection. You say, well, Gordon, what if, just, just throwing this out there, what if somebody made that up? I mean, what if the disciples just made up this whole thing about Jesus rising from the dead because they didn't want the story to end there? What if all those people just kind of got on board with that and, and, and it just, you know, the lie became sort of accepted, became myth, and then the myth became legend, the legend became true, and that's just kind of what we have today. Um, is it not possible? Well, it's possible that that happened. Anything's possible. However, when you consider that these same people who were um, sharing with others that they saw the resurrected Christ gave their lives to defend that truth, well, that becomes mm, some pretty strong evidence. They were willing to have their head cut off. They were willing to be burned at the stake. In the case of Peter, he was willing to be crucified upside down, to have his life come to an end that way, to defend what he 
and these other folks knew to be true. Folks, these, weren't, these folks weren't lying. Um, I, I can't help but think it's for this reason that God allowed so many of them to be martyred. It was to help convince you and I that their testimony was indeed true. So the conclusion of the matter is, in Christ, we don't approach the grave with the hopelessness and with the same feelings of emptiness that the world does. Paul says back in verse 13, he does not want us to grieve as those who have no hope. Notice what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say he does not want us to grieve. Grief is a good thing. Grief is a healthy thing. Paul's not saying don't grieve. Grief is, grieving is something that we need to do. But friends, as Christians, as believers in the promises of Jesus Christ, demonstrated in his resurrection, we can stand over those graves with confidence because Jesus rose from the grave knowing that we will as well. And one day with a loud cry from heaven and the blast of the trumpet, those graves will pop open, the dead in Christ will rise again. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for reminding us today of the great hope that we have, that dry bones will rattle once again. Lord, the grave um, cannot hold us. It could not hold you. We put our faith and our trust in you. It will not hold us either. Lord, misery loves company, and the world would love nothing more for us than for us to abandon our faith and our belief and our trust in you. But Lord, why would we want to be miserable with the world? Lord, let us fix our eyes on your promises. Let us fix our eyes on the empty tomb. May we be reminded this morning, encouraged this morning, that God, death, has not had the final say. Lord, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your shed blood. Speak and encourage our hearts today as we share in this time of communion. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.